0: This is Real Estate Rookie Show number 77.
1: But taxes doesn't have to be scary. It's not your job as an investor to understand all these different rules and regulations. Your job really is to keep your advisor updated on what transactions you have coming down the pipeline.
0: My name is Ashley Care, and I am here with my co-host, Tony Robinson. And believe it or not, but we actually recorded four episodes today. We are on a roll. <laughs>
2: yeah. I'm like losing my voice a little bit. My butt's getting sore, but we're, we're in the home stretch <laughs> now. But it was all good stuff, right? It was all for a good reason.
0: I know I, I can't even believe you haven't noticed yet, but I changed my shirt from the first three recordings. I thought for sure you would notice right away and say, oh, you don't want to have the same shirt on.
2: <laughs> I didn't even notice that.
0: We had like a five minute break and I actually scarfed down some sushi and I spilled soy sauce on my white shirt. So that's actually why I changed.
2: So <laughs> <laughs> that's why I always go black, right? Soy sauce should yeah, be all yeah. over the singer. you never know. Right. <laughs> right,
0: right. <laughs> So today is really exciting because a lot of you might think tax boring, but we have Amanda Han on and she basically wrote two books that are geared towards real estate investors to not make it boring. So today's episode is going to be informational, but she actually keeps it interesting because she breaks things down so that it's easy to understand and easy for you guys to implement into your business.
2: And I think the biggest takeaway from today's episode is that as a real estate investor, you don't have to be a professional accountant, right? That, that's what you hire a CPA for, but you need to be knowledgeable enough so that you can ask the right questions and really make sure you've got the right partner in your CPA. So she breaks down uh, what you should really ask a CPA when you're looking for one. Um, she breaks down a lot of the kind of mistakes that she sees rookie investors make um, and so many other things that I think are going to help the listeners today.
0: Yeah. And also, we have a little teaser for you guys. There's something really interesting at the end that she's teaming up with Bigger Pockets to put out for you guys. So make sure you guys listen for that.
3: Remember when you had to pay to get a leads phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost.
2: Rent to retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. dot com. That's renttoretirement.com. dot com. Or text REI to three three seven seven seven. Again, text REI to three three seven seven seven. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Amanda Han, the one and only, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm sure there are quite a few people in the audience that have, you know, already been introduced to you through your books and your podcasts. You've done for other bigger pockets related things, and we are excited to have you here with us today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I'm I'm so excited to be here with you guys. You know, I'm so starstruck by a lot of your Instagram posts. So glad to be here.
2: All
0: of our Instagram reels we do together.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, Now, uh, Amanda, I've read your book. I learned a lot from it myself. But uh, for the listeners that don't know you, uh, just give us the backstory. Who is Amanda Hahn? And and yeah, just, just what's your story?
1: <laughs> well, um, you know what? I, uh, I guess my background is uh, I'm a CPA by trade and I, <laughs> I call myself real estate investor by night. So I am like a lot of the, the rookie investors here who still have a day job and also been doing real estate, but I'm actually the third generation of real estate investors in my family. So my grandparents invested in real estate, my parents invested in real estate, and surprisingly I didn't start out on the real estate path. I you know uh, went to college, got a degree and started working in public accounting and it just so happened I ended up in their real estate specialty group and that's sort of where I learned or came to the understanding that there are so many tax benefits associated with real estate investing and that's sort of how um, you know my husband and I got started years ago. Uh, it was really for the tax benefits of it and so you know we're really fortunate to be able to kind of combine our passion in tax strategies as well as our passion in real estate investing and be able to kind of do both at, at the same time.
2: Awesome. Now, Amanda, you've written a couple of books for Bigger Pockets, So why don't we, we go ahead and let the audience know what those books are and kind of what the basic premise of those were?
1: Yeah. So the first book we wrote was called um, Tax Strategies for the Savvy Real Estate Investor. And it's actually good for all investors. You don't have to be a super savvy investor to read it. You know the reason we wrote the book was because uh, Matt and I we do a lot of learning ourselves. You know, listening to other CPAs and things like that. And when we uh, read a lot of the textbooks, they were just very dry. It was very boring to the point where you know I felt I found myself falling asleep. And so I thought, you know, how would investors get any benefit from reading something like that that's so dry? And so we set out. We thought, you know, let's um, write a book using real life examples. You know, story examples of clients. That we've worked with and what worked out well and what didn't work out well. So that's sort of the premise of the book. is It's not for CPAs. It's not a bunch of code sections. It's really just stories, both success and failure or horror stories, let's say, about you know how you can save money when it's done correctly in terms of tax savings, and then how you know you can end up costing yourself a lot of unnecessary tax bill. So that's sort of the premise. And then we wrote the second book, the advanced tax strategies. And that's more for more seasoned investors where, you know, they're looking at maybe selling properties or how do they scale up to different properties? So a little bit more advanced topic, but we try to keep within that theme of storytelling. Hopefully our goal is to to captivate the investor's attention because I understand tax is a very boring topic. So try to do what we can to get people excited about it.
0: Well, I've read both the books and I love them. And I'm so glad you're on the show today so that we can pick your brain and really tailor this to rookie investors just getting started. You have such an opportunity to start learning how to save those tax benefits and having all of those advantages before you have this huge portfolio and you look back and realize on all the savings you've missed out on. So Rookies, make sure you guys listen to the show and start implementing these strategies now so that when you go into you know, next year, you have everything ready for your 2021 taxes to show. So Amanda, the first question I have for you are, what are some of the common tax mistakes that rookie investors actually make?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, rookie and just even seasoned investors, I would say the most common mistakes that we see are missed tax deductions. You know, as investors ourselves, usually we're pretty good about writing off, common expenses like, you know, mortgage interest, right? If we have debt, we're writing off our mortgage interest. We're writing off property taxes, um, you know, insurance expense. If we hired a management company, we're always, you know, most people are good about writing those things off, but what a lot of investors don't think to write off, or maybe don't know to write off are some of these other expenses that are not property specific. So an example might be, Bigger pockets subscriptions, right? So if you're a pro member or something like that, you're buying books, maybe a tax strategies book <laughs> about real estate. So oftentimes we see people miss out on those, those types of things. You know, I'll, I'll have someone who, um, you know, found us through bigger pockets or through the book. And then when we do their tax returns, we don't see those expenses, right? So those are common mistakes, but people don't know that they can track and write those things off. Um, also things like a home office, I would say, especially, you know, since COVID, right? Most of us are working from home for our real estate. And even outside of COVID, I I don't know many investors who rent an office space just to manage their rental properties. So home office is a huge one that a lot of investors um, should be taking advantage of. And of course, you know, car, cell phone, we use all those things for our real estate business. And a lot of people miss out on those deductions I think because either either because they've been given wrong advice or they didn't know that they can write those off.
0: Amanda, just real quick, can you give us a breakdown as to how a rookie investor should be tracking their expenses? Maybe just recommend some software and what are they doing with receipts? What's the proper way to actually track their expenses so they can write them off?
1: Yeah, I love that question because that's one that I get a lot too. So, um, there's not a specific methodology that fits all investors, right? So because people will ask me, should I use QuickBooks? Should I use Stessa or property management software? Um, And it really depends on you. So if you're someone who likes software, QuickBooks is really great. It can automate with your bank account and credit card, and you can download a lot of that stuff. But we do come across rookie investors who just don't like software, and that's perfectly fine. So if you don't like to deal with software, Excel is perfectly sufficient for you to track your income and expenses, right? As long as you're listing those things out. Um, or we do have some people who still like, you know, paper and pencil. So, and then that's okay too. So um, the key <laughs> I tell people is it has to be something uh, that, that you will like using. Because if I tell you to use QuickBooks, but you hate software, guess what's going to happen? You know, you're going to buy QuickBooks and you're going to be afraid to touch it. And then, you know, months or a year goes by and then you realize, gosh, I wish I would have been tracking those things. So it, it it's really up to which each investor um, likes. But in terms of, you know, apps and stuff, I I do like um, trip mileage. That's one where you can track your expenses, uh, your, or your car miles and your car expenses. So that's a really great one. But yeah, in terms of like, you know, receipts too, a, mis- a common misconception is that you have to keep those little thin pieces of paper. And you actually don't. Um, What you can do, what I do is I just take a picture. Whenever I'm spending money on business stuff, I take a picture of that receipt and it goes into my phone. It's already labeled by date. And then I just throw it up into a folder. I don't, for me personally, I don't look at it again because all that is already tracked through my bank or my credit card. Um, But I do have that receipt there because If I were to be audited years from now, that will kind of be my insurance policy to show what I spent money on.
0: Just a a real quick thing, too, is something that I've learned is that when you have software such as QuickBooks or even property management software like Appfolio, Buildium, when you pay for these services, so if you leave those services and you've attached all of your receipts which is nice because if you want to go into your bookkeeping and pull up uh you know an expense the receipt is there the the expense is written in there and it's all nice and neat together when you leave that software you have to individually go in and download. They do not make it easy for you to take those receipts with you. So I I loved your tip Amanda is to just throw it all into one the one you know Google Drive folder, OneDrive or whatever you use and save it there and make sure that you you are the owner of that, of those receipts, because it can be very time consuming to go back and pull all of those receipts from
2: software.
1: Well, that's for sure. They don't want you to leave. That's the why they make it harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Amanda, you also mentioned something that I think was like a, a really, really good piece of advice, not just for tax, but for like life in general. But you said that like which software or strategy you use isn't as important as picking one that you'll stick with. And like, that is like, that is such good advice. Like even, even outside of like tax preparation, like there's so many different strategies and niches and real estate investing in general, and people are like, which one should I do? Which one should I go for? And it's like, whichever one is best suited for you as an individual is the one that you should go for. So I, I just really wanted to pause and highlight that because you, you said it real nonchalantly, but that was like a bomb being dropped in my mind. So I had to highlight that. <laughs> Um, So I I want to go into the next question here, Amanda. And, And this is something Ash and I were actually talking about before we started recording today. But it's at what point should I, as a new real estate investor, hire a CPA? Is it before I get that first property? Is it immediately after that first property when I've gotten to five? When does it make sense to engage with someone like yourself?
1: Yeah. And that's a great question. So part of that is also a little bit investor specific. You know, if you're someone with an accounting background yourself, you might be able to get away with waiting until after you have, you know, one or two properties to talk to someone. Generally, I do recommend interviewing CPAs when you're ready to make that first acquisition. So if you know if you're still thinking, should I do this, should, should I do a burst? should I do a house hack? you know maybe it, it's a little bit premature to start li- looking for CPAs. Um, but sure for sure, after you've started investing in real estate, you know, maybe even that first property, it could make sense to start at least interviewing that that interview process to find someone who is a good fit.
2: So the, uh, that's a great point. So if I'm a new investor, what kind of questions? should I be asking a CPA? Like if I've never really dealt with one before, maybe I don't even know how to filter out a good one from a bad one. So what are some good interview questions we can ask?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's some common things that, that people always talk about, right? Like, do you invest in real estate? You know, do, um, what is your experience? Do you have clients who invest in real estate? And I can tell you that you ask 10 CPAs that question, they will nine out of 10, nine, or even maybe 10 of them will tell you that they, Work with real estate investors, right? Because there are there's someone who has one investor client will say, yeah, yes, I, I do have a real estate. I think a really kind of cool way to talk is not to ask those obvious questions, but maybe have them talk to you about real estate, right? So what are you seeing in the real estate market with your other clients? What are they doing? What's going on in the short-term rental market? Um, what kind of strategies are your other clients using in the short-term rental space? And also, maybe just using you know different languages that we talk about on bigger pockets that we take for granted, right? Like the birth strategy or house hacking. Um, I think you'll quickly be able to gauge whether that person is well versed in real estate or if they you know just kind of get lost and have no idea what you're talking about, right? Good way to gauge how experienced they are, indeed, in real estate.
0: So I think that kind of rolls into another question we put together is. How complicated do taxes actually get once you start investing in real estate?
1: <laughs> well, you know, it really depends on what kind of real estate transactions you're doing. And, you know, I hate to use the word depends, but I'll give you some examples. Okay. If you're a newbie investor and you're going to buy one turnkey property, right? It's somewhere already rehabbed it. It's already tenanted. You kind of step into the shoes as an owner and you just get your cash flow. And that's fairly simple because there's not a lot of expenses. they're pretty much recurring. And so it might not be very complicated when you do tax returns either. As another example, if you are someone who is uh, doing the birth strategy, right, that might be something a little bit more complex because you're making a lot of improvements to the property. So you'll want to you know be working with a CPA or a tax advisor to know, how am I treating these? What can I write off for faster depreciation or can I write them off immediately? Or even if you're someone who's house hacking, you know, a lot of newbie investors start with the house hacking side of things those can get very, very complicated. Um, and I say that from experience in terms of the tax side, you know, I have one rent, you know, my home, I rent out two rooms and partway during the year, the roommate moves out and now it's a short-term rental. So there's all these different tax treatments of gosh, well, that was just your home, but now we have to split it into three or, or maybe even have a home office for one of the rooms, right? So now it's one property, four different treatments and it could get complicated. So and, you know, you can see that's very different than one turnkey property where everything's sort of already done for you.
0: For that example right there, using a home office or, you you know, renting out one room, how does someone go about as to, you know, tracking and proving that that room was used as that? You know, do you have to take measurements of the room and divide that by the the square footage of your house? How does uh, that all work? Because I, th- I think that's a a common investing strategy that people miss out on and aren't very sure as to how to actually do it. And there is, it seems like a little bit of work to to put into it to actually prove that you're, you're using it as a home office.
1: Yeah, sure, that's a great question. And so you're right, there's two different methods. You can measure the square footage of your office versus the square footage of the entire home. Uh, or you can look at number of rooms. So number of rooms as an office versus total number of rooms for the whole house. And so in both of those, you come up with a percentage, a ratio, and whichever one is the higher percentage is the one that you can use for your home office deduction. So, you know, for example, if using one method, I might, you know, 25% of my house is a home office, you're going to get a larger tax write-off than if only 10% of your house, right? Because then you can write off higher percentage of your utilities and you know cleaning fees and all that good stuff
0: when does that ever happen they let you use the higher percentage i know right off. it's rarely the case <laughs> but that is true for home office yeah. i never thought about it that
1: way but you're right that is uh a...
0: yeah
1: <laughs> so yes it is a little bit of time to kind of measure out the square footage of your home office i think most of us know the square footage of our home already right isn't that mean if you bought it or you're renting you know that you have it already so and it is one time one time you've measure it and you get to utilize it every year until you actually move. So it is a huge benefit. I think I still hear from a lot of investors where their CPA or their tax person tells them not to take the home office because it will be audited. And um, I think that kind of advice is a a real disservice to real estate investors because the IRS has changed their position on that many, many years ago. And they are of the understanding that, you know, if you have a legitimate home office, A lot of us are using it correctly in that manner. So, and even for people who are renting, you know, if we have rookie investors who don't own their home, they're just renting an apartment, you can claim your home office and write off part of the rent that you're paying to your landlord as well. So that's also one that we see missed from time to time.
2: Now, Amanda, one one additional question for me, and this is kind of taking a step back to look at like the, the bigger relationship between the CPA and the real estate investor. But outside of your CPA doing your taxes or helping you with your taxes at the end of the year, what else should I as a real estate inve- investor be expecting from a solid CPA?
1: That's a great question because... There's two different things, right? That what you're talking about is maybe tax planning. During the year, what should I be doing? How should I be tracking my home office? How should I be tracking my improvements? And that's what we consider proactive planning. So that's when, when you contact your CPA to let them know, hey, here's some things I'm planning on doing. What should I do? Should I have an LLC? Should I have a corporation? How should I pay for this large investment I'm making? And that's very different than meeting with your tax person in you know, February or April and saying, hey, here's all my tax documents, go ahead and file the tax return. And I think you know, most investors, if they have a CPA, they're, they're doing that second part, which is, okay, here are my documents, you know help me save taxes. Um, and the reality is that for a lot, a lot of the things, that's a little bit too late because the year has already gone by. And either you already tracked those expenses or you didn't, and and you're in a situation where you have to sort of guess what you spent money on, or maybe even lie, right? Which is something that none of us want to do. And so it's very important to make sure you are being proactive with your CPA or your tax advisor during the year. And it, you know, I always want to harp the point that, because I know a lot of people are scared of taxes or they just don't like taxes, don't want to hear about it, don't want to read about it. But taxes doesn't have to be scary. It's not your job as an investor to understand all these different rules and regulations. Your job really is to keep your advisor updated on what transactions you have coming down the pipeline, right? I'm buying some short-term rentals. I am maybe selling this property on Main Street. And with one statement, a simple statement like that, if you're working with a good advisor, they can help you strategize and say, "Oh, short-term rentals. Have you thought about what kind of furniture you're buying? How can we write them off? How are you going to pay for those?" Or, "Hey, you're selling a property. What what is it going to sell for? You know, are you going to have a, a you know um, seller finance it or something like that?" So, from those conversations is where your tax advisor can think more strategically and help you plan. I think one thing is like, how do you know if you're working with someone strategic currently? One way is to ask yourself, you know, what is my plan? What is my plan to save taxes right now? You know, do I know how to track my expenses? Do I know whether I'll be able to maximize my write-offs with real estate professional or short-term rentals, right? If the answer is yes, great. That means, you know, you have someone great on your team. If the answer is no, then you might want to, you know, start interviewing people and trying to figure out who would be a good fit for your team.
2: So, I mean, I just want to recap what you said here to make sure that, it, you know, we've got it the right way for the listeners. But there's there's two types of relationships uh, that you can have with your CPA. One is a transactional relationship that's, you know, just here's everything. Let's file the taxes. The other is a more strategic relationship, which is saying, how do we plan for the future to make sure that we're being proactive in reducing our our, you know, our tax burden?
1: Yeah, exactly. During the year, right? The proactive planning happens during the year before you implement these purchase, sale, refinance transactions on your rentals. You know, sometimes your CPA that's planning for you is the same person or firm that's doing the tax filing, right? Which is great. Other times it might be two different people. There are more firms now that are focused on the planning side. and, And that's not the end of the world, because if you've done the planning, right? Meaning if you've, captured your expenses, you've implemented the transactions the correct way during the year, then odds are, regardless of who's filing your tax return, the results should be pretty similar because you've kind of done that pre-work to make sure you're doing everything correctly in the right steps.
0: So Amanda, I want to know what are some of the tax advantages for the different real estate strategies? So, you know, I do mostly buy and hold investing. Tony is short-term rentals. For example, what are the advantages of doing a short-term rental that maybe you don't get for a long-term buy and hold investor?
1: Oh, wow. Well, I mean, I would say, first off, I would say both of those are really great, right? Long-term rentals and and also short-term rentals are great because we get the benefit of depreciation, right? Right. And so, you know, depreciation as in the ability to to write off part of the purchase price of our building, regardless of whether the property value actually goes up or down in value. And I think that's really, really huge because especially for rookie investors, you know, an example might be if you buy a property, you know, let's say you buy a $100,000 property and you put 10% down, right? So $10,000 down. But for that property, using depreciation, and right now we have bonus depreciation, I mean, you might be able to get a tax write-off of anywhere from fifteen to even $30,000, right? If we assume, you know, the building is $100,000. So your tax write-off might even be higher than what your down payment is, which is really huge. And you can do that for both short-term and long-term rentals.
0: Amanda, can you just break down what depreciation is and even bonus depreciation for our rookies just... Kind of explain, you know, what it is and how it's a a benefit to real estate investors. Sure. So
1: depreciation. So the IRS has a rule where, you know, if you buy an asset or investment that in your house, in our example, they'll, their thinking is that the, 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 the home will go down in value. Why? Because of wear and tear and things like that. And that is the reason why you can write off depreciation. The IRS has a set of rules to, you know, how you calculate these different things. Um, but basically you're taking a, a tax deduction on a paper loss because we haven't, you know, for, for a lot of investments, it actually goes up in value over time, right? Or at least that's our hope if we're operating correctly and doing forced depreciation. And so, um, but nonetheless, under tax law, you can still take a write-off for the value of the property uh, over time based on your purchase price. And so that's why I was saying, hey, if you bought a building for $100,000, you know, your depreciation could be anywhere, you know, from even 15 to 30%. Bonus depreciation is something that's currently available, which is that for certain assets that you buy for your real estate, you might be able to write off up to 100% of that asset. Now, it doesn't apply to the building. So it's not like we bought a $100,000 building, we just... Write off $100,000. We wish that were the case, but that's not how it works. But, you know, if you're someone who is in the short term rental space, for example, and you have furniture, you're buying furniture and fixture to kind of get everything all beautiful and ready to be rented out, those are things that are eligible for 100% bonus depreciation, which means if you spent 15, 20,000 on all that, you might be be able to write off the whole thing in the year that you've purchased it.
0: Yeah, here's a little example for rookies. So you have your first property, say you have rental income of $10,000 and you have your expenses of $5,000. So you have your water bill, you have your lawn maintenance, you have your property management fee, all that. So you have a $5,000 profit. So you go to your CPA, they do your taxes, and it shows, wait, you only have $3,000 profit. What happened? And that's where the depreciation comes in. So it's not cash out of your pocket, but you're not paying any taxes on that income because it's being taken off for that depreciation. So that's a, a great benefit to investors is... you. You know, a lot of times you have to go to, you want to lower your taxes. Okay, then go buy something for your property, do an expense. But this is a way where you're not actually taking money out of your pocket to get that that tax write-off. So depreciation is definitely a, a great resource for investors.
1: Yeah, I love the way you explained it too. Um, and you know, if we just go over like another scenario, right? Where we earlier, we said, okay, if you put $10,000 down, but for rookies, a lot of times we're talking about um, you know, creative financing, right? No money down real estate, and that works the same exact way. If you buy a property with no money down, you still are able to get the same depreciation, just as if you put ten percent or twenty percent down. So it's certainly a, you know a big benefit for investors to make sure they take advantage of. <laughs>
2: When Bigger Pockets started podcasting, no one thought we needed a store, but then books, so many books, best selling books, rookie books, partnership books. We needed the best real estate bookstore ever, so we chose Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. bookstore. So sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com/bp rookie, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com/bp rookie now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com/bp rookie.
4: Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first, and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours, even the same day, with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help get you the best price possible for your home.
2: So another question for me, Amanda, is uh, what are some fatal like entity mistakes that you see newbie real estate investors make? And maybe before you answer that, just define what like an actual entity is for those that aren't familiar with the term.
1: Yeah. So legal entity, typically what we're talking about is um, like an LLC uh, partnerships, C corporation, S corporation; those are legal entities. If you know, if you hold your rentals in like a land trust or in a sole proprietorship, uh, those are not legal entities, right? So, legal entities, you actually form it with the state, and it's a legal structure. Um, gosh, there's there. <laughs> I hate to say this, but there are so many um, fatal mistakes that I see uh, with respect to entity structuring. I think one of the more common, so one of the most common ones is, you know, going back to this concept of people missing out on tax deductions. And the reason, a lot of people are, are, that they can't write off their real estate expenses like, you know, podcast or membership fees and and those types of stuff. They can't write them off unless they have a legal entity. And that's not true. Um, If you are in the business of investing in real estate, the money you're spending to help that real estate activity is tax deductible, regardless of whether you have legal entity or not. So for a lot of rookies starting out, they might not have a legal entity, but they might've already even done one or two deals, right? So just keep in mind, you can write off those business expenses, even though you don't have a legal entity. And when we say business, we just mean you're in the business of real estate investing, right? Not that the business of having an LLC or something like that. So I think that's one that I see a lot. Uh, Another one I see a lot sort of interrelated. So sometimes I see investors on the rookie side, who um, come to us with a bunch of entities formed already, and <laughs> one of the issues with that is if you don't have any rentals yet, or you know any flips, rentals, you're not doing anything yet. Then odds are, what happened was you might have spent a ton of money to form those entities without actually needing them, and that might be money that really could have gone to good use had you. Instead, utilize that to invest in a deal or something like that. So try to avoid forming the entities too quickly. And then the flip side is I also see clients who form it too late where, you know, they have a lot of properties and they later form an entity, but they don't really utilize the entity. So it's kind of just the shell corporation that's sitting there. And in the meantime, they continue to own their real estate personally, pay for everything personally then they don't get any of the benefits of the entity from a liability protection perspective, because it's just a shell entity that's hanging out there. And, you know, you have this false sense of security that you're doing something when you really did it.
2: Can we talk about that last point, Amanda, about people waiting maybe too long to form that entity? Like what at what point would you recommend that people really seriously consider creating that legal entity?
1: So part of that's going to depend on the type of real estate deal you're doing, right? So if you know if we're assuming it's rental properties, then usually you want to have an entity. Once you have you know decent amount of equity in the real estate, um, or if you personally have a lot of assets because you're trying to protect them from a liability perspective. Now I'm not an attorney, so so you know for rental investors, short term rentals, long term rentals, people doing the Burr strategy, that's also rental essentially. You'll definitely want to talk to an attorney as soon as you start owning real estate to figure out when is a good time to start putting it in, you know, from a tax perspective, again, whether you have an entity or not, same depreciation, same tax benefits, home office, all that is exactly the same. Okay. It's a little bit different for active real estate though. So if you're a flipper or a wholesaler, or if you're a realtor, um, those income, Uh, if you earn those inside of a legal entity, you may be able to save on some taxes. So, you know, in those scenarios, I typically recommend forming an entity earlier rather than later, even if you're a flipper, maybe before you sell that first flip deal. So you can have all that income earned inside of the entity.
0: I want to talk a little bit about house hacking too, since a lot of our listeners, that's how they get started in real estate is house hacking. So we did touch on, you know, writing off a a room and how to calculate how much to, to write off. What are some other, you know, expenses that they should look? I mean, are they taking the electric bill and, you know, taking the percentage of that? What are some other things that house hackers need to look for?
1: Yeah, certainly. And, you know, even house hacking itself, I've seen it come across different arrangements from, you know, someone renting out a room to someone buying a duplex and renting out one of the units, right? The tax side is pretty similar on the, on both of them in that you, you know, you're basically the rented unit or room, whatever expenses you have for that particular area, you can write off a hundred percent of it because that's, a hundred percent real estate related. The portion that relates to your main home, for example, you know, utility bills for the home, internet for the home, roof for the entire home. Uh, those you take a percentage of it. So the the portion that is related to the rental you get to, you know, expense or depreciate just like you normally would. The other part that's personal where you are living, then it's just like any other primary home where you get to deduct the interest and taxes. And then the rest of that is kind of your cost basis in that building, um, you know, to kind of help you save taxes in the future. So we've seen that from both scenarios and, and from a record keeping perspective, it's really important to take that next level and track in terms of what which one of these expenses are for the whole property versus which ones are for the rental unit specifically. Let's say if we have a duplex and I spent $10,000 to repair some stuff in my rental unit, that's great because I can write a lot of those off. But if I spent the same amount of money on my primary unit, then it's not as ideal because it's just a personal expense and I don't really get any current tax benefit. So I know it's almost counterintuitive because a lot of times it's like, if we have a duplex, I want my home to be very nice and fix it up. But it's almost from a tax perspective, it's better for you to really fix up the rental part because you get better tax savings for it.
0: I want to just talk about writing things off. So what exactly does that mean? I have had this happen to me a couple of times where people have thought that, and it was a, a girl that interned for me actually was the first person back when I was a property manager. She thought that writing off meant that you're, you're buying stuff, but the government's paying you back for it because you're just writing it off. And so I, in case there is anybody else that thinks that, and you know, you don't learn these things in school, really. I mean, I may know this stuff because I worked in business and I went to school for accounting, but I feel like there's a ton of these phrases that go around and misconceptions. And so maybe for a very rookie investor and rookie entrepreneur, what is writing off? Because if you're working a W-2 job, you're most likely not writing off anything on your taxes. So you can really just break that yeah, down.
2: But before Amanda even answers that, like Ash, we gotta we gotta like start lobbying some politicians or something to make that the actual definition of write off because that would be fantastic if the government just like cut us a check for everything.
0: I know, and the, po- the poor girl, her I think it was her fiance at the time I don't think they were married yet but she was just like well why can't we just go buy this we'll get paid back for it and he's like well how much money have you been spending on the credit card thinking this would happen (laughs) 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 that we'd be getting it paid back but just if you could just explain how writing it off and how that actually works is that you're not getting money back from the government you're just paying Less income. I'm sure you can explain it better than me and kind of simplify yes. it for everyone.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, first, I agree with Tony that we should lobby for something like that. That would be great. So, so yeah. So, writing off means you are taking uh, a deduction against the income that's being earned. So, for example, you saying earlier, if I have a rental property, I have five thousand dollars worth of rental income. I have thousand dollars of write-offs you know, now I have $4,000 worth of rental income. And so, so, you know, depending on your tax rate. So if you're someone in the, you know, 10% tax rate, then you're going to pay like 400 bucks in taxes. That's the savings is based on your tax rate. So, you know, the higher your tax rate is, the more the actual tax savings you get, the lower your tax savings is. The lower your tax, you know, the, the, the lower the rate, the lower the tax savings. So it's um it's not a dollar for a dollar. What they're looking at is maybe like there are some tax credits, you know, where oh I spend a dollar and I get a dollar in credit, but that doesn't work. Um, it doesn't necessarily work the same way in you know in terms of of write offs. Um, it is applied against whatever the tax rates are going to be. Oh, obviously, that's a really great point because sometimes people will say, "Hey, you know, um, what should I buy to get tax savings? You know, I want to write off as much as possible to because I can save on taxes." And that's never a great starting point because you know your your, your tax rate is never one hundred percent. So. Um, you know, if you're spending $100 and even if you're a 50% tax bracket, you're going to save 50 bucks in taxes. So we only want to spend money on things that will help grow our real estate that are needed. We don't ever want to spend money just for the sake of tax write-offs.
0: <laughs> and just from an investor point of view too, is the lower your income is. So the more stuff that you write off, uh, it'll be harder to get a loan too going forward because banks want to see that your rentals are profitable and that you're not losing money. So also keep That in mind, too, if you really are scavenging to pay no income tax at all and trying to find every single thing to write off, that can, uh, you know, hurt you, too, in a sense, when getting a loan.
1: Yeah. And that's a great question, because, yes, that is a common issue that we see with investors, especially for more of the rookie investors starting out, maybe don't have a huge rental portfolio yet one recommendation I would say is make sure you're working strategically with a lender as well. So a good lender is someone great to have on your team because a good lender who works with investors will know how to explain your tax return to their underwriters. So write-offs are not created equally, right? So a lot of times, you know, we might be writing off things like depreciation. So a lender will be able to explain to the underwriter, hey, this is not money that you know ashley is spending this is a paper write off or car expense and home office these are things that we have anyway so they sh- maybe should not count against you or against your income when you're applying for loans right so there's differences in terms of how to write them off and what you write off that might be able to get you the tax savings and not hurt you as much on the on the loan side
0: that's a great point because when i worked for another investor i would do all of his financing and I remember going after a loan on a, a big multifamily property, and there was a a lot of remodeling that was done throughout the units. And you know, they didn't the bank didn't take that into consideration because it was a, a one time expense or replacing the roof. Uh, you know, the capex expenses. Sometimes you can do what is it? Where you can section one seventy nine. Yeah. Yeah. Bonus depreciation or something. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. So different ways you can write out, but they wouldn't count any of that because it was a, a one, it's not like it's a continuous expense every single year. It was a, a one-time deal.
1: Exactly. It's just, I mean, a lot of times you get to the same answer, you know, where you're still writing it off. It just shows up on a different form and then the lenders won't count it against you. So definitely some planning room there as well.
2: So the the next question I have, Amanda, right, I'm you know, the majority of my portfolio is in short term rentals. And, you know, I've heard that there are some additional benefits to owning a short term rental that you don't necessarily see with a traditional long term. So I'm curious if you could highlight, if any, what those benefits might be to owning and operating a a short term rental.
1: Yeah, we're seeing so many investors now go in the short term rental space because I think cash flow is always good and it's just gotten better in the last year because of COVID. And, you know, we expect that to continue. So, uh, such an exciting time. I think if, if I had additional time, that's what I would probably want to get into next. So I have to come to you for advice on that. But in terms of taxes, <laughs> besides the, the furniture and fixtures, right, we're talking about as a short-term rental operator, we're, you know, including those in the property. Um, a lot of those are eligible for bonus depreciation, which means you can write them off immediately under current rule. Uh, so that's one huge benefit. Um you know, in the in the rental space, there is a rule called the passive activity loss rule. And that's what we can talk for eight hours about. But just in general, it means that, you know, if you're someone who whose income is over one hundred and fifty thousand, OK, to the extent you you have losses on your rentals and I don't mean losing money, I just mean you've created a loss because, you know, you've done all this depreciation and home office and, you know, all these write offs. And so if you've created a loss, um, you cannot use that loss to offset taxes from your W-2 income unless if you're a real estate professional. And so there's a lot of rules around what is a real estate professional, which we talk about in the book. But effectively, being a real estate professional uh, means that you have to spend more time in real estate than your job. Right. So for you, Tony, if you're working 2000 hours, 4000 hours at Bigger Pockets, <laughs> then you have to spend more time in your short term rentals to be a real estate professional and use those losses from the long-term rentals to reduce taxes from your job. Those roles are a little bit modified for short-term rental properties. So for people who own short-term rentals, you don't necessarily have to be a real estate professional and you might be able to use any of those created losses from the short-term rentals to offset taxes from W-2 income. And the requirements for short-term rentals that you meet what they call material participation. And so usually there are seven tests for that, but the two most common ones we see are that one, you personally are spending at least 500 hours in your short-term rentals, okay? So if you're working, again, 2,000 hours of bigger pockets, but you're spending at least 500 hours in your short-term rentals, then you can use the short-term rental losses to offset taxes on the W-2 side. So bonus depreciation, cost segregation, all that fun stuff comes into play. If you can't meet the 500 hours mark, then the other one is the 100 hour rule. So it sounds like it's easier, but it's actually a little bit harder. And so in that scenario, it means that, you know, you, Tony, are spending at least 100 hours in your short term rentals, but no one else is spending more time than you. Okay. And that no one else includes your partner's the cleaning crew, the property management, so other people that's working uh, in that short-term rental. So if you can meet that role, then you also sh- you know, might be able to use those losses to offset taxes on the W-2 side. That role we typically see people use for investors who self-manage the rentals. Because odds are, if you have property managers and people that are doing the cleaning and all that, you know, oftentimes there's, spending more time than you on that, you know, on the investment side.
0: Well, Amanda, thank you so much.
1: <laughs> I was saying that's just yeah. real quick. That's a huge one because we have a lot of clients who are still working full time because not everybody can afford to quit working and do real estate. Right. And that's where this huge loophole comes in. That, hey, you got a, a couple of local short term rentals that you're uh, managing or that you're running then, you know, there could be some huge benefits to, and not have to worry about quitting your job to do real estate full-time.
0: Well, Amanda, thank you so much for all of this knowledge, but you do know you're on the rookie show. So we do have to ask you one question. We have to know what is a rookie deal that you've done? Um, if you could just share, uh, one of those deals, one of your first deals that you did with us. Oh my gosh.
1: Should I I share a good one or a bad one? (laughs) I've done a couple rookie deals.
0: (laughs) To share a bad one with us. People usually go for the good. Let's hear a bad one. Okay. Okay. I'll give you both. They're pretty short. So
1: (laughs) I'll start with the bad and we'll finish on the good. Okay. Okay. The bad one was Ricky, um, my husband, Matt, and I first started out. We went to, uh, you know, back then there was these real estate conferences that you just paid obscene amounts of money to attend. Thankfully, now we have bigger pockets and- as part of the conference, we met, uh, you know, some a uh, really nice team of gentlemen. Uh, they were starting apartment investments in Texas, and we decided to invest with them as a passive investor in the deal. So it's, it's a, you know, it's a failure story because at the end of the day, I lost all of my money in that investment. Oh, and no. what I learned was because I love those guys so much. They're very personable. I love their bio but I didn't take into consideration that you know this was kind of their first deal and the market was changing. I didn't do due diligence on the deal. So you know how investors sometimes we fall in love with the property and not look at the numbers. In that scenario, I think we fell in love with the syndicator and we didn't look at the numbers. Yeah. And so that's what I learned from my failure rookie mistake. My, my success story was actually a deal that we did on our own. This is my one of our first deals in Las Vegas. We bought a property. It was in a fairly uh, bad neighborhood, but it was in a gated community. So it's kind of an outlier within a bad community. It was a home that we bought back then for about 60000 and had the best tenants. And we later sold that for about two seventy. And, you know, very passive, nothing I had to do, uh, barely had my property management go out there at all. So one of my favorite deals that haven't been able to replicate recently.
2: And, and Amanda, we actually just had a passive investing like pro on the podcast. So for the listeners, I think, I think if you go back three episodes, maybe we had Travis Watts on the podcast um, and, and he's a professional passive investor. Um, so he can kind of outline some of the... Uh, I guess advice that maybe people should follow so that your, your first passive investment deal doesn't quite end up like, uh, like Amanda's. But thank you for sharing that, Amanda. I'm I'm glad that the, the the first, the the first deal taught you some lessons to help you do better on the second deal. I guess for, if you don't mind sharing how, how big is your portfolio today? How many properties you guys still own?
1: So we have a mixture, uh, similar to before. So I am still a passive investor in a lot of deals, right? Cause I've learned it doesn't mean I stopped. I never gave up because we still do work full time. And, you know, we got two, two kids at home, uh, can't really uh, be as active on, you know, kind of the short-term rental space, which is next on my goal. So we do have a lot of, uh, passive investments in multifamily in a Texas area. And then the, the ones that we are more actively involved, uh, are mostly in, in Las Vegas, which is where I'm from originally. So a couple of single family homes, um, as well as some condos as well. So, um, you know, those are the ones that, that I, I, I'm more emotionally connected with because <laughs> I actually self manage some of those.
0: This week, we are going to do our rookie rock star and our rookie request line voicemail all in one. So we actually pulled this from the real estate rookie Facebook group, Make sure you guys join, uh, tag us in your wins, your successes, and we'd love to shout you out as a Rookie rock star. So this Rookie rock star has a win and uh, has a question about, is this actually going to be a win? So today's question is from Natalie Wynn, and her question is, I am in contract for my first out-of-state property in Clearwater, Florida, the duplex long-term tenant occupied for another year. Purchase price $267,000 with $2,300 monthly income. I just found out about the property being in a flood zone and requiring flood insurance. Not to mention, it already has high insurance premiums out there. Really cutting into my cash on cash. Over 6000 a year for insurance only. Inspection is scheduled for tomorrow. Doing the math, this could leave me with as little as 2% cash on cash after all said and done. I would appreciate any advice. Thanks. Okay, Amanda. What would be your advice on this? (laughs) I'm
1: up first. Gosh, you know, I, (laughs) well, because I'm a numbers person, right? I have to, I think the decision is going to be based on the numbers. The question is going to be, are you okay with that cash on cash return? And if not, are there similar properties you can get under contract that are in the similar area where it might not be in a flood zone? If you know it's it's if you're not going to be able to operate the property at least comfortably in your mind without that flood insurance, that is something that potentially could break the deal for me uh, as an investor. Um, strictly looking at the numbers.
2: Now that, that's great advice, Amanda. And and I want to chime in just a little bit because I had a similar situation with one of my investment properties. Uh, we bought a long term rental in Louisiana that ended up being in a flood zone, also. And this was this was our second investment property, but the first one that I had with my partner. And we made the decision to move forward, even though the cash on cash was pretty slim. And for us, we made the decision for a couple of reasons. One, and this is the biggest reason is that we wanted it for the experience. You know, this is our second time going into a property doing an out-of-state burr. And for us, that being able to educate ourselves on how to refine that process of burring out of state i think was more important to us than the actual cash flow now we knew that we had enough capital after and actually that deal didn't cost anything out of pocket because we got really good financing on us we were able to buy it with zero down so it, it technically was it was infinite cash on cash return but there was very small cash flow uh, but for us it still made sense because we knew that we had more than enough capital to go out and get subsequent deals i think for you natalie if, if this is going to tie up all of your capital and you'll be kind of stuck after this, then maybe consider whether or not this is the right deal. But if you know that you'll have more funds after this one to go on to the next deal, um, you know, if this is going to be your first one, the purpose of the first deal is to educate yourself, is to learn the ropes, is to give you the confidence to do the second deal. So some factors to consider, but, but hopefully that helps.
0: Yeah. Natalie, first of all, congrats on taking action and getting a deal under contract. That That's really great. My advice would be, and it's probably going to be too late for this by the time this episode airs, since it says your inspection is tomorrow. But my advice for anyone that comes into a situation like this is to use this as a time to do a counteroffer. So after your inspection, you can, you know, get your try to get money off of the deal. So I would use this as a situation If you just found out that the property was in a flood zone, so was it not on the listing or, you know, was the seller not up front with you about it when you first looked at the property? So this could actually be some leverage for you to negotiate a better deal where it actually does make sense. And since you're already under contract, it's worth asking for them to take some money off of it. And for them, it might be worth it to take the money off because they're already in motion with you than having to go and, and find another another buyer. But Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. We've loved all of the value that you have brought for us today. Uh, Can you tell everyone where they can find a little bit more about you? And I recently learned about something really exciting that you're teaming up with BP to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. This has been so much fun for me. Thank you guys uh, for uh, involving me. And uh, yeah, so yeah, people can find me. Our uh, company website is www.keystonecpa.com. And of course, we have the Bigger Pockets books that I encourage people to read if they haven't already. Um, and yes, I'm also very excited that we've been teaming up with Bigger Pockets. We have a, a four day mini course that we put together. Really, it's designed for um, more of the rookie investors who are starting out and talking about what are some common mistakes to avoid. And also we touch on some of the top 10 tax saving strategies that are available for real estate investors. And so those can be found on our website. And I think for pro and premium members, they actually can get a 50% discount uh, from Bigger Pockets. Um, I think it's in their pro section of, in the membership section.
0: Okay. They can go to biggerpockets.com forward slash perks forward slash pro. And actually you guys can get that that 50% off right there. So I think it's only $20 to get all of Amanda's knowledge for rookie investors. <laughs> I would say well worth it. I hope me and Tony get to come.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, of course. It's actually an so on-demand um, course that we put together. So you don't actually oh, have to go anywhere. Cool. You can do it from the comfort of your home. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I didn't I knew you could do it was virtual, but I didn't realize it was on demand. So yeah, that's really awesome. So everyone can do it um, at their leisure. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. We, Tony and I both love your books and uh, we felt very honored to to have you on the show today. And I'm sure our rookies took a lot of value. So I really hope that they're all looking at their accounting setup and making sure their bookkeeping is accurate and tracking those receipts and, you know, (laughs) taking advantage of all the software and the tools that are out there to help them easily and accurately uh track their bookkeeping. thanks guys yeah thank you and make sure you guys join uh, the real estate rookie facebook group and we will be back on saturday with a rookie reply you guys can uh tag us in a message on facebook if you want your question or your topic to be featured on the rookie reply or you can also send us a dm i'm ashley at wealth from rentals and he's tony at tony j robinson on instagram Thank you guys so much for joining us. And Tony, I really think we need like a closing tagline here. I to, every time I just say something different.
2: <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll try and figure something out for the next one. We'll
0: see you guys on Saturday for the Rookie Reply.